0: So our scripture passage this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 11, It's verses 19 through 26. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll take some time to reflect on it. Uh, if, you, if you're using the Blue Bibles, it's on page 920. So Acts 11, page 920. So let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's words. You find it. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So let's sit down and take a moment to reflect on this word. So what we have today in our story is the, the origin story, as it were, of the word Christian. Christian. Um, now, we all love a good origin story. We all know that the best superhero movies are the origin stories. That's why they've remade Spider-Man 1 like five times now, because it's just the best. Uh, getting the origin of the powers, the beginning of the story, is it, so exciting to see what happens. And so today, what we see is the beginning of people being called Christians. Now, interestingly, as you can see from the end of the chapter, or uh, from the last verse we read, from verse 26, it says the disciples were first called Christians. Not that the disciples first called themselves Christians. So, what this means, as far as we can tell, is that Christian was a term that came from the outside. In fact, it was probably kind of a derogatory term, like a joke or an insult. Um, So, Christian comes from a Latin word that means little Christ. And so, what that meant is that in Roman eyes, suddenly there was this group of people that weren't just, you know, this kind of weird branch of Judaism, which was weird already in Roman eyes, who were talking about Jesus. But it was this group of Romans as well, their own people, started going on and on and on about, you know, their Christ this and the Christ that, and you know, just on and on and on, over and over, until finally they're like, okay, you're all just a bunch of little Christ's, you know, it's like that's what you are, you're one of those people, and so they needed a name for you know, to label this this movement, this group of people who were becoming increasingly strange. You know, they didn't, uh, it was a group of their own folks. So they spoke like them, they dressed like them, they lived like them, they moved in the same social circles, but they started changing their lives away from their cultural norms. So they didn't live by the calendar of pagan festivals anymore, where we do, you know, the Zeus festival here and then the Apollo festival there, but they were living by the rhythms of the Christian calendar of gathering for worship on Sunday mornings and staying away from kind of the pagan festivals. That they weren't living, you know, kind of according to the patterns of Roman life, which were that sort of wealthy land-owning men had everything, and then everyone else had nothing. And they were sort of basically objects for the, the pleasure or comfort or use of wealthy men. But we see them start living in different kinds of marriages, where instead of it being this sort of like patriarchal power game, that their marriages become kind of sources of unity in life, of mutual sacrificial love for one another that instead of this like, absolute social stratification where there's like, wealthy people, there's citizens, and then there's slaves, they see people across socioeconomic lines mixing and mingling with one another, calling each other brother and sister, um, which actually led to accusations of incest because they're, like, they're talking about like, all this affection for brothers and sisters. Like What's going on here? It's because that's what the, the Christian family looked like. They started becoming a different kind of people, And not just like my one weird neighbors who dress funny and talk funny and say funny things, but people I used to know are getting into this. And so it needs a name. And that's where the name Christian finally comes from, because they don't know what else to call people who talk about their king, because that's what Christ means. It's Greek for anointed, which means the king. And so today we see the origin story of where that came from. And as we're going to see that origin, I would say, you know, on the one hand, it comes from God. You know, like you can see in the Bible, it says that the hand of the Lord was with people and more and more folks became Christians. And so that's an easy answer and it's a true answer. But the passage also goes on to show us kind of from the human side of things, what it was that gave birth to this group of people who were so strange, who were so different, so unique that they needed a new name. So what gives birth to Christians? And I'm going to uh, argue kind of as I look through the passage, I think the best way to think about it is that Christians are born from a passion for the next generation. And if there's a way to summarize the sermon in a sentence, if there's one thing you take away, Christians are born from a passion for the next generation. That doesn't just mean like younger people, like kids, but that means the next generation of Christians that could be in peers or even parents, but the next generation of Christians. So a passion for that is what gives birth to Christians. And so let me pray for us, and we'll get into the text, and we'll look at that together. Dear God, we stand here, one, like we already worshiped and talked about and sang about, by your grace, that it is by your grace we come to you. But you've chosen, you've ordained that in your grace, we also heard about you, from people who loved us. We heard about you from people who were speaking boldly and sharing boldly about you, that we were encouraged in our life of faith so that when we became Christians or begin to grow as Christians, we had people walking alongside us and helping us along in this life of faith, that we have been taught and equipped by people um, long before maybe we came to this church if we didn't grow up in it. And so, God, I pray today that as we look at that, that you would inspire us with a passion for the next generation of Christians in turn, and that you would help us orient our lives, orient this year, so that we are cultivating that passion to see a next generation come and follow after us in a life of faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I read an article recently in the Gospel Coalition that uh, started by talking about the German national soccer team. So the soccer team had a, like a dominant series kind of at the, the end of the turn of the century. So like the late 90s, early 2000s, Germany was the dominant force in like world football. They had what's called a golden generation where it's just, you know, it's like the dream team in NBA basketball in the early 90s. It's like they had just this slate of players who were so dominant that they just won, won, won over and over again. But then that group of players aged out. They retired, and for over a decade after that, Germany went from being like the dominant force in football to near the bottom on the world stage. Um, And that was because they had only invested in this golden generation they hadn't done anything to develop the talent that should have come, that was going to come after these guys aged out and retired. And so what they decided to do, they kind of realigned what they were doing, and they adopted what they called a talent without end strategy, where they started investing in kid soccer, youth soccer, young adult, and kind of lower leagues, and identifying and recruiting and training players who weren't ready to join you know, the, the national team yet, but who might be one day. And so in 2014, they finally won another World Cup after nearly a decade and a half of losing. And, you know, they've uh, stayed, you know, kind of at the elite level of national soccer more or less since then because they finally said, we need to develop not just the people that we have right now, but we need to look past them at who's coming after. And we need, in in a sense, a passion for the next generation of German soccer talent. And so what we see today, uh, what we see in this passage in Acts is we see a similar passion and we see it worked out on several different levels, but we see a group of Christians who have a passion for the next generation, not just of soccer players, which is cool, that's fine, that's great, nothing wrong with that, but for the next generation of Christians, of people who have come to know the God of the universe, the eternal, glorious, and holy God who created them, who gives life and breath to them like we sang about and who saves them despite their sin into reconciliation with him under the life and the death of Jesus, and then guarantees them eternal life in the new creation so that they go on to become men and women of glory that C.S. Lewis talked about, people that we would be tempted to worship if we could see them as they're going to be. They had that vision for the lives of the people who came after them. Not just for God's glory in that, but also as a love for this next generation. And that passion that led to their committed love for this next generation is what led to the origins of what we call the church. That is what led to the creation of a group of people who were so distinct that they needed a new name. And so there's a passion for the next generation is what gave birth to Christians, And so the first thing I want to see as we look at this passage and how this passion plays out is we see first is that Christians are born from a passion to reach the next generation. Christians are born from a passion to reach the next generation. Reach is kind of the the operative word here. Let's look at verses 19 through 21 together. So they read, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So Luke tells us here who sowed the seeds of this new church. It was those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen—that's in verse 19—and that's actually a reference back to the beginning of Acts 8. See, so we see Stephen's story. Sorry, my microphone's slipping loose. Let's see what I can do here. Uh, so Luke tells Stephen's story in Acts chapter six and seven. Uh, we see Stephen live and minister, and then he's actually the first Christian martyr. So he's the first person who's killed for following Jesus. Sorry, let me see what I can do here. Uh, and so in Acts, at the end of Acts 7, Jesus or Stephen is killed. He's stoned to death. And then at the beginning of Acts 8, go ahead and flip back there. It's just a couple pages in your Bible. At the beginning of Acts 8, let me read verses 1 through 4. It says, And Saul approved of his, that's of Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So Luke tells us something really interesting here, and he's very clear about it. Then in verse 1, there's this huge persecution, and it says the church is scattered out of Jerusalem, except the apostles. The professional leaders, the people who are the core of the ministry, the ones that you think, they're the ones who have the responsibility of taking the faith on to the next generation. They stay in Jerusalem, and it's everyday men and women who are scattered about. And it's these everyday men and women who go about preaching the gospel. And so those are the ones who in our passage in Acts 11, and we can flip back there, they're the ones who go and bring uh, the gospel to Antioch. And more than that, they're not just everyday men and women, but they're basically refugees, There are people who are displaced from their homes because if they stayed, they were either going to be put in prison or maybe killed, and they have left and kind of taken uproot and fled to just any city that could take them in to try to build a new life in a new town. Uh, You might be forgiven for thinking that the last thing on their minds would be, you know what, I should start telling people in this strange new town about the king who almost got me imprisoned or killed in my last town. You know, that might be kind of low on, like, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, it's like, let me get some other stuff squared away first, and then I'll think about sharing my faith. You know, this would almost be like, you know, meeting a family in uh, Halliburton Park and getting to know them and having a conversation and asking, you know, like, how long have you been in Wilmington? Because we're all transplants here. And then being like, oh, yeah, I just got here a few weeks ago. Um, I was being persecuted for Jesus back in my home country, and they let me resettle here. And they're like, what do you say to that? You're like, oh, my I, Oh my goodness, I'm glad you're okay. You know, are you okay? How are you are you settling in? How are your kids? And then they respond like, "Yeah, actually, you know, Jesus is really taking care of us through this whole time. Can I tell you about him?" Like, that's what's happening here. These new refugees are coming, building their lives kind of from the ground up again and sharing their faith as they're doing it. It's baked into who they are. Can you imagine? But the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life and death for their sin and resurrection and victory over the grave and the hope that he offered of eternal life with God in heaven, with him in the new creation, that so animated them, that so filled their imaginations that they're like, hey, you know, I was persecuted for that in Jerusalem. That's okay. I might be persecuted for that here. But I want this for these new neighbors that I have. I... Something's going on here. Let's see. I want this for, do we have a handheld I could use? No, we don't. Anyway, all right. Um, they, they want this so uh, passionately for the next generation of Christians that they, they keep on sharing about it as they're building a new life from the ground up. They want as many people as possible to know who Jesus is and to trust him like they do. One of our ministry partners is a church planting organization that is, it's in India, and it was started and is run by Indians, so it's like a a native Indian ministry that we partner with and support. Um, Actually, a leader in that ministry is coming to preach for us next week, and so you should come back for that because it's going to be awesome. Um, But uh, let me read this story. This is from a prayer report that they sent us in September. Um, They don't give us the man's name in this story, so I'm going to call him David. So they write this. They said, Brother David, who's 62, is a faithful believer and a member of a large family. For the past four years, Brother David's faith in Christ has come at a great cost to the family. They've been excluded from their community and denied basic utilities. Recently, they've been under intense pressure by the village chief and priest to leave the village, adding to the denial of services threats from the community have come in the form of confrontation with their family members in the streets of the village. They go on to say, please lift this family in prayer for endurance and ways in which they can show the love of Christ to break down barriers. Now, you might think when they say, please pray for this family, it's pray that they'll have the means to find a new village or that they'll get legal protection so they stop being ostracized or any number of things about just letting them be more comfortable in their lives. And that would be great. You know, that's something that is a, you know, a thing to pray for. But they ask instead for endurance of what they're going through. And not just endurance, but the ability to show gracious love on top of their persecution in the face of their persecution, of being denied basic utilities, uh, being confronted in the streets so that they can keep showing Christ's love to their villagers and keep talking about who he is. They're asking for courage, not for relief, because they want to share their faith and see more people come to Christ. They have a passion to reach the next generation. That's what it that looks like. So this year, as you're thinking through your life and your plans, you're thinking through what 23, 2023 might look like, ask yourself, who in my life could be that next generation? Who are the people in my life who need to hear the gospel? And if they don't hear it from me, I don't know who they might hear it from. If they don't hear who Jesus is, if they don't hear what it looks like to live for him, if they don't get an appeal to trust in him and follow him from me, they might not ever hear it. Who are they? And then what do I need so that I'm willing to take that next step and reach out and have that conversation with them? Do I need a deeper prayer life so I overflow with love uh, from God for others? Do I need training? Do I need community support or accountability so I'm willing to take these courageous steps? When we start our Sunday school classes up again in two weeks, January 15th, we actually have a cohort that's going to train people in how to share their faith. So it's going to include some Sunday morning classroom time, but it's also going to include assignments and group activities outside of Sundays to put into practice what we're learning so that the folks who are going through it get opportunities in growing and sharing their faith with others. So that's coming in two Sundays. We'll talk more about it next week, but um, if that's something that you would like to grow in or are interested in, I would really encourage you to do that because this could be a beautiful year for reaching a next generation of Christians with the gospel. So Christians are born from a passion to reach the next generation, but that's not all. Christians are born from a passion to encourage the next generation as well, a passion to encourage the next generation. Let's look at verses 21 through 24. It says, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. So these everyday believers, they go out into the world with a passion to reach the next generation. And by God's grace, a great number of people turn to trusting and worshiping Jesus. Word of this gets back to Jerusalem, where kind of the apostles and the organized, you know, existing church is, and they send one of their most respected members, Barnabas, to go out and see what's going on. So one of my old pastors, the last church I was at, uh, he preached a sermon that was just on the life of Barnabas in scripture. And it's amazing because Barnabas is this incredibly cool figure. Um, if I can find the sermon, I'll send it out in the, the sermon notes that we send to community group leaders and maybe put it in our newsletter this week. But very briefly, Barnabas wasn't one of the 12 apostles. So he wasn't one of the, like, the, the 12 pillars, but he was there very early on. His real name was Joseph. Uh, But Barnabas was his nickname. Barnabas means son of encouragement because he was such an encouraging person. That doesn't just mean that he was like a teddy bear or he was what we call sweet, but he brought people along and he trained people up in the faith. So he's not a B team guy who's sent to investigate this strange rumor as like busy work. Um, He's one of the A team um, among the, the early church. He's a key player. So verse 23 says that when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I actually like how the King James Version renders this, which is a little bit closer to the Greek. It says, he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. Does it that with purpose of heart, with a fixed, an intent heart, they would cleave to the Lord like a husband and wife cleave to one another in marriage. So that's what Barnabas came to do. He said, I want you to fix your hearts on God. Cleave to him with your whole self, with purpose of heart. Verse 24 goes on to say that a great many people were added to the Lord as part of this ministry. See, this is such an essential part of Christian ministry, especially in a cultural context where Christianity seems strange or unwelcome, which it certainly did in Roman Antioch. See, when Jesus told the parable of the seeds in the soils, um, there's a parable, if you don't know it, basically there's a farmer who sows seeds on four soils. And in one of them, nothing happens. The seeds are kind of taken away before anything can grow. And in one of them, there's kind of a rich soil where seeds grow deeply and produce fruit. But there are two soils where it seems like something grows initially, but then it's choked out. In the first case, because it doesn't put down roots deeply enough, And when suffering comes, when persecution comes or struggle comes, it withers away. And in the second case, because it has so many other loves that are competing for it, you know, loves for wealth, loves for comfort, loves for pleasure, whatever they might be, that they choke out the seed that seems to be growing and it doesn't take root and grow. And so the kind of the word, you know, ultimately doesn't, doesn't take root in that person's heart. So new Christians need encouragement to let their newfound faith take root so it can really change their lives and take off. They need people who come around them to celebrate God's work in their lives, which can be weird and messy. Uh, I became a Christian when I was 20. It was weird and messy, for, it's still weird and messy, but it was very weird and messy when I was 20 uh, in the middle of college coming to Christ um, and to strengthen them through the challenges as well as the joys that come along with faith in Christ. We had our first kids, our first three kids, we have four, when we lived in Indianapolis, And we had the blessing there of having an incredible doula whose name was Jenny. Now, for those of you who are like, what is that? You just made up a word. A doula is a woman who assists with childbirth. So you're in the hospital. We get birth in the hospital. So there are doctors and nurses who help. But a doula is a woman who is there with you the entire time. She's an older, experienced woman who can kind of encourage you and walk with you through everything that happens through labor. Uh, And my wife, Allison, uh, gave birth naturally. And so she really needed the encouragement and support and help from a doula. But Jenny, our doula, she was a mom herself. I think she had four kids. You know, when she started with us, she had a fifth along the way. Um, And she had also been a labor and delivery nurse. And so she knew what birth felt like, looked like, how things worked. And so The whole time that we were going through all three of these, she was able to say, you're making progress. This struggle, this pain, it's normal. You don't need to be afraid. The baby's coming. Hold on and get through because there's hope. There's a light at the end of this tunnel. And just that presence, those words of encouragement, the ability just to say, this is normal. You know, we're going to get through this. There's hope on the back end. That was such an incredible blessing that made each of those births, which each of which had like little issues along the way, because they all do. um, It made them much easier to get through and much, um, just much more bearable along the way through everything that came with it. So that's what encouragement looks like. It's being there for the beginning of this new life of faith. It's being in the game relationally with younger believers saying, you're making progress. Even if it doesn't feel like it, you're making progress. The struggle you're having, it's a normal struggle. We all have the struggle that's okay. And there's hope at the end of this. It's worth staying in the game. The encouragement of the relationships that come as older Christians befriend younger ones is unimaginable in the life of a young believer. I had that, and the two men who provided that for me were instrumental in my new faith, which came on like a summer project, taking root in my, my real everyday life in college and becoming part of who I was. So I didn't just you know, have a summer experience that turned to nothing. It made it become real through their work, uh, through God's grace through their work. So that's what encouragement does. It's to befriend someone and be there for them, directing them with Christ along the way. Our church has a lot of ways that you can get involved with the next generation of younger people, whether that's kids, youth, college students, um, even young adults. We have a ministry for young moms, and we have Iron Leadership and Women's Bible Studies, which let men and women respectively kind of mix with one another around generations or across generations to build relationships and build each other up. And, you know, in in our day, a group of people who cultivate friendships across generational lines is sort of like Antioch Christian-level weird, right? Like, we don't do that. Like, we live in these segmented generational bubbles. And so just the opportunity for older and younger people to befriend one another is it's a testimony to something going on, you know, that's different from the normal patterns of everyday life. But those are all great opportunities for older, more mature believers to come alongside and build relationships with younger Christians or younger Christians who need encouragement to find older men and older women who can help you. That's a vital part of the overall mission of the church. And so finally, we see in this story that Christians are born not just from a passion to reach and encourage the next generation, but from a passion to equip the next generation. A passion to equip the next generation. So look at verses 25 and 26. It reads, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas sees this work happening in Antioch, this wonderful thing. And in addition to encouraging them, he thinks, I need to get Saul. And so he leaves, and actually the word for, like, look for Saul is is like a diligent search. As they imagine like kind of wandering through the streets of the city, like tossing things over in your house to look for something. It's not an easy task for him to go find Saul in Tarsus, but he goes to get him and bring him to Antioch. And this is the Saul who would later have his name changed and be the Apostle Paul. So they put down roots for a year to meet with the church and teach a great many people, It says. And so as we'll see, Barnabas is actually equipping the next generation in two different ways. So he's sort of applying this principle in two, two forms. And the first one is the obvious one, that he and Saul met with and taught these new believers for a year. Wouldn't you love to have been in Antioch that year? How cool would that have been to get to spend time learning from Saul and from Barnabas? So you might hear teaching and think something like lectures, but most likely this teaching looked different. It looked more like this. So during worship on Sundays... Barnabas or Saul would get up and they would be the one to read a text from one of the Old Testament scrolls if they had them or to share a story from the disciples testimony about Jesus whether that had been written down yet or not we don't know but they would share that and then they would teach from it just like what I'm doing right now and they would teach the disciples that way somewhere like preaching. And then also throughout the week, uh, you know, kind of day to day, they would go into people's houses and meet with individuals or families, you know, maybe small groups, and they would kind of talk with them, providing more teaching on like what it means to live Christianly in your everyday life as a husband or wife, as a parent or child, as a worker or, you know, a business owner. And they would show them, they would coach them on how to live faithfully with God, so how to you know, think through a passage of scripture. They didn't have scriptures that they could carry around and read. We have an incredible blessing in having Bibles, you know, have the whole thing printed, but like showing them how to pray by modeling that for them and coaching them along the way. And that equipped these younger believers that equipped this next generation to become the, the different human beings that we saw at the beginning who needed a new name because they were so strange and so different. So that equipping uh, is part of this passion to reach the next generation. And we need this. You know, all of us, especially new Christians, need to learn how to see God in the Bible and engage with him in prayer. How to live faithfully in the everyday callings of my life as as a neighbor, as a parent, as a worker, so that I can be with him. We need uh, this equipping, this teaching that can only really come from people who are above me, people who have been a little bit further along and can help me out with these things. So this is a huge need for equipping in our church. And once again, that can come through those relationships and the ministries we talked about already, or just with, you know, like a next generation believer that you've met or gotten to know or helped see come to faith. Um, Just the fact of saying like, hey, let's get together read the Bible together, and pray with one another, that is an immensely equipping thing to do with someone who is new to faith. And so we need that um, to equip a next generation of Christians. And the second way that Barnabas does this, and this is where we'll finish, um, it's a little bit harder to see because if you know your Bibles, uh, you know a lot more about Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, than you do about Barnabas. See, Saul, Paul, goes on to write, you know, like, more books in the New Testament than anyone else did. He's this incredibly influential figure in early Christianity. But at this point in story, the the most recent highlights of his ministry, this is in Acts 9, there's two of them. There's one he was barely accepted by the apostles as a Christian because he had just recently been like persecuting, killing and imprisoning Christians until God saved him. And it took Barnabas' encouraging presence, it took Barnabas' support to get Paul just accepted as a Christian by the people and not turned out as some kind of spy. And then his other ministry highlight is he started ministering in Jerusalem and he made things so dangerous for himself because he was really sharp, but he's also a pretty fiery guy apparently, that he put his life in danger and he got sent back to Tarsus, his hometown, just like for his own good so he wouldn't be killed. So like if ministry is a game, he got benched by the apostles. And that's where he is. He's riding the bench in Tarsus right now. He is not the apostle Paul. And so when Barnabas goes to Tarsus to get him and bring him here, he's not going for the A team. He knows that Paul is sharp, but he's saying, this guy has potential. This is a next generation leader and he needs help. He needs the experience so he can grow into the person that he is supposed to be. And so, just like we saw from the, the German Football Association story of pursuing a, a talent without end football strategy, Barnabas here goes for a talent without end discipleship strategy, where he says, I'm going to bring a younger guy along who's going to be able to learn and grow. And it, there were probably rough moments in Antioch over the course of that year, but he's going to become someone who can go on carrying the torch after I do, because we don't know how how old Barnabas is, but eventually he does fade out of the story in Acts, and Paul becomes kind of the main character. And so Barnabas is willing to uh, bring alongside this young, rough guy and train him up and equip him as a leader, and then he becomes the Apostle Paul. How wild is that? And so what we have as Christians, what we should have, is a passion not just to teach and equip a new generation of Christians to make them dependent on us, but especially if we're in leadership, in a community group, or a ministry, or just kind of in our, you know, our own ministries in life, we want to bring people along with us so we can equip them and raise them up so they can go on and take the faith farther than we could, so they can reach even a next generation that we wouldn't be able to touch because of who God has made them to be and where God puts them after we're gone. And so this passion, not just to reach, not just to encourage, but to equip the next generation, is what leads to these people uh, becoming Christians, becoming a church that needs a new name. And I pray, our prayer as a church, is that over this year in 2023, this would be a passion that all of us share. Let's pray now. Dear God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace that saves us. We thank you for your grace that encourages us. We thank you for your grace that teaches us. And you give that grace not just through your word and your spirit, but also through your people, through people who become part of our lives, even if it's just for a little while, to point us to who you are, to help us walk with you, to learn from you and live faithfully with you. And so I pray for the the next generation of Christians who are here. They're new believers. They may one day become new believers, whether they're adults or whether they're kids. I pray that they would have people in their lives who have a passion for them, to help them along with you. And I pray for all of us that you would give us a, a burden to look around us and see, who can I reach? Who can I encourage? Who can I equip to walk faithfully with God after I'm gone?